Well, friends, what a delight it's been for the last number of weeks to go through the book of Revelation. I, I really didn't know how it was going to go when we started the series, but it's exceeded my expectations. It's been a great blessing in my life, and I hope and pray that it's been a blessing in your, yours. Um, in terms of a roadmap of, of where we're going, so for the next three weeks after today, we're going to do kind of a little segue between Revelation and the beginning of a sermon series through Judges this fall um, that will kind of then transition into focusing on the minor prophets before we celebrate the birth of Jesus at Advent. So a lot to look forward to. Well, this past week I was um, made aware of an absolutely fascinating podcast. I have to thank John Heath for that. You never know where sermon illustrations are going to come from and you praise the Lord when they do come. So John sent me a podcast, so our own Kevin Williamson, if you remember who Kevin and his wife Christine just moved to Virginia, but Kevin was the co-host of a podcast with Charlie Cook. I think it was called The Mad Dog and the Englishman. Well, now that Kevin's no longer doing that, it has a boring title, it has, it's just a Charlie Cook podcast. Um, at any rate, Charlie is actually a very conservative atheist. He's a political conservative who's an atheist who hosts this podcast. He writes extensively for the National Review as well. And so he was interviewing another atheist, a woman named Lionel Shriver. She is an award-winning author. And the title of their podcast from this past week was just one word, death. That's the name of the podcast. Because the National Review magazine had asked Lionel to write an article, the lead article, for the most recent magazine called The Quest for Immortality. And so he was interviewing her about this idea of death, uh, you know, the quest for immortality in our culture as, as medical advances continue, as science continues, that a day may come that people stop aging. And um, it was just really interesting to watch these two atheists grapple with the idea of death, grapple with the idea of the hope of eternal life in this world. They both came from very different perspectives. And I, I heartily encourage you to listen to the podcast. And it's just the Charlie Cook podcast. It's called Death and he's interviewing Lionel Shriver. And so Charlie has an interesting perspective as they were talking about death and trying to be realistic that death is coming for everyone. And Charlie's a pretty optimistic guy. He's, he's, he's very funny. He's, uh, he's kind of an upbeat British fella. And he said that death is very disconcerting for him. He didn't mention anything about like... Um, the possibility of hell or anything like that. But he said, the idea that my most cherished memories, the idea of my most cherished relationships coming to an end is completely overwhelming to me. The idea that my life, really in the scheme of things, means absolutely nothing. And then he gives 
the example of when he took his son, who's seven years old, to Universal Studio to ride one of the Harry Potter rides that his son had been waiting to ride, and they ride together, and it was just like he said, this incredible father-son moment, and they were just bonded and enjoying it. And he said afterward, he was in a contemplative mood, and he just thought about it. He was like, you know, I'll cherish that forever. That's one of the high moments of my life I think that my life will ever have. And I can't imagine a day when that memory and that moment will be gone, as if it never existed. He said, I just can't imagine that it had no significance in the scheme of things whatsoever. And so he was grappling with that. He's talking through that, like in a therapy session in this podcast. Then Lionel comes on. Interestingly, she is the daughter of a Presbyterian pastor who has now passed away and a man who was the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York. And one thing that was very difficult for her and really I think contributed to her atheism is that she realized over time that her dad really didn't believe it. That over time, incrementally, she realized her dad wasn't buying it. And at the end of his life, she actually um, had the courage to ask him about this. Like, you were a minister. You were the president of historically one of the most um, academic theological institutions in the world at one time Union was. And she realized at the end, he didn't believe it. He had no comfort from the idea of eternal life. He wasn't looking forward to heaven. It didn't occupy anything about him at all. So as opposed to Charlie Cook, Lionel said she doesn't want to live forever. That even if the day came where through some kind of genetic therapy or whatever else, everybody could like, um, everybody could grow in health to like having the body of a 25-year-old just into perpetuity. She goes, I don't want that. That's not the kind of world I want to live in. She said, this is so ironic and, and so sad. She says, death is what gives meaning to life. Death is what helps shape and structure life. Death is what gives life a beginning, a middle, and an end. She said, I can't imagine a life where I would get married a hundred times if I lived into perpetuity. I can't imagine a life where I wouldn't enjoy drinking a delicious glass of wine with dinner. Because if you have endless time, it makes it boring and mundane and really irrelevant. She said, quote, the oblivion of death is a comfort for me. The idea of living forever was devastating and frightening to her. Well, friends, I would submit to you that she knows the answer to these questions all along. She probably heard sermons that she no longer remembers. But it is a tragic misunderstanding of the passage before us today that would lead someone to conclude that death and oblivion is the answer. Death is the enemy. Beloved, this is the hope. This is a hope of what we're all looking forward to. This is where everything is going. And thankfully, we have the privilege today of learning a little bit more about the new heavens and the new earth. With that in mind, please stand for the reading of God's word. 
Revelation 21, verses 1 through 14. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. The Apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words, they are trustworthy and they are true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty, to those who know their need, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this inheritance, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, meaning all of those who have rejected Christ in his kingdom, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to the great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Friends, I think it's safe to say there is a lot here. There is so much here. What I want to do this morning is, is I want to explore how Revelation 21 and 22 tie together five 
perhaps seemingly disparate threads or cords or strands from the Old Testament. And I'd like to examine how Revelation 21 and 22 tie up these loose ends and turn the tapestry over to see this incredible work of God. That's what I want us to do this morning because as we've seen over and over again, all Revelation is at the end of the day is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Old Testament illusion, illusion after illusion after illusion, covenant after covenant, promise after promise coming to fruition at the end of all things. It's like um, an amazing movie, an amazing novel, where at the end your jaw hits the floor because you didn't know how the author pulled it off. All of these threads, all of these plot lines, you had no idea how they would come together in the end, and then they do, and you are like, wow. That's what we have this morning. We have a feast before us, and the first thing I'd like us to consider is the restoration of all things. The restoration of creation, the restoration of paradise, the future of what that entails. Look with me at verse 1, the first half of verse 1. John writes, we can't even begin to fathom what he saw in this vision, what it was looking like, how it was portrayed. John writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Remember, everything in Revelation has been building up to this. The end of the world has come multiple times. Uh, the glory of God has conquered evil a number of times. These battles have intensified over the course of Revelation, and now the hope of God in Christ Jesus is also at its most intense and bright and wonderful. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This is what he's seeing at the end of all things. Verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And as we've said multiple times, this is not talking about heaven. This is not heaven. If we died today, we would go to the intermediate state and be in heaven with Jesus. This is talking about the new heavens and the new earth. I did not understand this until I went to seminary. What was really being talked about here? Now, scholars and theologians debate when God makes all things new at the end of time, is this earth and the universe, is it going to be destroyed? Or, and then a brand new one come into being? Or is God going to sanctify, refine, renew, remake the earth that we're on now and the universe that we live in? And the consensus within Reformed theology is the latter. When Jesus comes again, in power and glory, he is remaking, transforming this world, this universe. He's going to make it new to the degree that we can't even fathom how beautiful it's going to be. It's going to have mountains and oceans, and we'll look a little bit later as why it says there's no sea, there's no night, things like that. Remember, those are symbolic. Those are visions. Those are pictures. You and I, the people of God, are going to live on this earth made new. 
free from all curse, free from all sin. The oceans, the rivers, the trees, everything that the Garden of Eden was, but so much better. When he says, I'm making all things new, when Jesus died, he didn't die just to redeem us, okay, and make us new and give us new bodies. Jesus died to redeem the entire universe that was brought under the curse of sin. I've probably told you before, I have one of my favorite professors in seminary named uh, Douglas Kelly who liked to think outside the box a little bit. He was a very good Southern boy, and he would speculate in the class. I mean, he is one of the most revered scholars, systematic theologians of our time, and he would speculate that in the new heavens and the new earth, the creation mandate will be extended to all of the universe. And the properties that Jesus enjoys right now in his glorified body will be properties that we will enjoy that you would be able to think about being in Paris. You would be able to be there just like that. You'd be able to think about exploring other parts of the universe. And you'll be able to see what God has created. You'll be able to appreciate who God is as creator in ways that we really can't now because you're only seeing a fraction of his creative capacity. Now this idea of the new heavens and the new earth, this is nothing new. This goes all the way back to Isaiah. Isaiah 65 reads, I mean, you think about this. You think about 800 years before John is writing. In the book of Isaiah, Yahweh God Almighty says this to encourage his people. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, which is a picture. It's a symbol that when he makes all things new, no more crying, no more pain, no more curse. Briefly said, from the very beginning, from the very beginning, creation was going somewhere. Eden was temporary. The glories of Eden, walking with God in the cool of the day, that was temporary. That was pointing ahead to the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. And that was intended to be temporary. That was intended to be a foretaste. Now we're going to the new Canaan, and it's not heaven. It's the new heavens and the new earth, the true land flowing with milk and honey. Creation's going somewhere. Number two, the defeat of evil and the safety of God's people. In the church age, the people of God will be persecuted and tortured in some situations. That day is going to come to an end. Look at the second half of verse 1. The sea was no more. And I don't want to, you know, beat this drum too much, but we've talked about before. This is a picture. This is a symbol. The sea in ancient times symbolized chaos and death People would go out in their vessel. They would never come home. You couldn't predict the weather. Um, lots of bad things happened on the ocean. And so to give you and to give me a picture of safety and calm, he says the sea will be no more. Death will be no more. Look at verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. 
Death doesn't give us perspective. Death is not a blessing. Death doesn't make, make drinking your Merlot tonight all the more meaningful. Death is the worst conceivable thing that has ever been brought into our world. And one day it will be no more. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore for the former things will have passed away. Things will be so different. So I had a precious, precious um, child of our church and she's growing into a beautiful young lady. I may have mentioned this before, Adelaide Breed. Um, asked her dad, Michael Breed, one of our elders, like, can we go talk to the pastor? And Adelaide is already an incredibly deep thinker at her young and tender age. And so they come into my office and um, I was like, Adelaide, tell me, tell me what, your, what your thought is. She was concerned about something and I totally resonated with her concern. And if I've mentioned this before, forgive me. And, and she just said, and if I butcher this, Adelaide, I'm sure you'll tell me later. Um, I, I'm, I'm frightened, I'm overwhelmed by the idea of eternity. I can't conceive of the idea of living forever and forever and forever and forever. And have you ever done that thought experiment? Have you thought about that? Like, you know that it's going to be wonderful, but you're like, I, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of living forever. And so we talked about it, and I said, you know, do you remember when you didn't exist? Isn't that frightening to think at, at one point, like, you didn't exist? Like, how bad was that? She was like, I, 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 don't, I can't even conceive of that. I don't remember that. That's not troubling to me. It's like, we are going to be so different. There's going to be such maturity. Like, like imagine a four-year-old trying to fathom the things that we adults experience and love. Things that four-year-olds or three-year-olds or two-year-olds think is boring and they can't relate to it, but as you grow and mature, your capacity to learn expands and now you appreciate things you never thought you would imagine being glorified and enjoying the new heavens and the new earth forever. No death, no pain, no mourning. Trust me, you'll never be bored. You'll never wonder about when are these things going to end. We just trust Christ that he has something in store for us that are incredible. Look with me at verse 12. He describes this, this place, this new city, this new creation. It had a great high wall, okay? In the first century, cities needed walls. You never know what was gonna happen. There are great high walls. That's a picture of protection. There are angels that protect these walls. Verse 25 on panel six, don't go there, I'll read it in just a second. Verse 25 says, its gates will never be shut. Okay, so doesn't that seem to be kind of conflictive? So the gates are high, which implies protection, but the gates will never be shut. They're high, they're protective, they'll never be shut, why? They don't need to be. There's no evil there. There's no serpent there. 
There's no adversary there. There's no evil there. Go to panel six, please. You talk about, I'll just ask you this. Who could have thought of this? When Moses was writing the Pentateuch thousands of years ago, how could he possibly on his own have just made this up? A plot line that is in thousands of thousands of years, these bookends separate each other. And everything for Israel was about getting to the land, getting the tabernacle, getting the temple, having the presence of God uniquely dwell with his people, with him as their God, them as his people. That was the covenant. And then we get here and we find out it was all a picture. Look at 21, verse 22. I mean, for Jews of the first century, this would have been mind-blowing. And I saw no temple in the city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? Because the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the land. I mean, just think of all of the Old Testament pictures that come to fruition here. All the, the feast of lights and the light and the tabernacle and the lights and the temple, it's all pointing to Jesus who said, I am the light of the world and he will light up this new world. Look at verse 24. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, all of the people of God, Jew and Gentile alike, all the elect of God from beginning to end will bring our gifts, our praise before him. Verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life Chapter 22, verse 1, some of the most beautiful words you will ever read. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright or clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, wait, what? The tree of life? with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Wait, what are these leaves of the tree? They are for the healing of the nations. Do you understand all of the loose ends that are being tied up here? What was in the middle of the Garden of Eden? There were rivers throwing through Eden. The tree of life was in Eden. All of that was a foreshadowing of this. What was denied Adam and Eve and all their posterity? Why were cherubim there with their flaming swords? Okay, 
they're protecting the gates of the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were kicked out so they could not eat from the tree of life. Every nanosecond from that time until we're in the new heavens and the new earth, the people of God have been waiting finally to eat from that tree and to drink from those waters and to enjoy the fullness of eternal life. The leaves of the tree, at the end of verse two, the leaves of this tree that are on either side of this amazing river of eternal life, the leaves of this tree were for the healing of the nations. Verse three, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name. It will be on their foreheads. In other words, he will have possession of us fully, completely, truly, and really. Verse five, night will be no more. They will not need the light of a lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. This city of light. It is such a tragedy that Lionel Shriver's father had no cherishment of what the Lord has in store for his people. This president of a seminary. It's heartbreaking. Praise God that by his spirit we do. And there is a natural fear of death that's still part of this fallen world, but friends, trust me, when that time comes, the Holy Spirit of the living God will prepare you. You cannot imagine it now. You're worried about that day. That day keeps me awake at night sometimes. The Holy Spirit of the living God will be with you. His angels will be with you. He's growing you, maturing you. When that day comes, you will highly anticipate what he has in store for you. I'm going to end with this. Because there was a preview of this um, in Isaiah again. And, and, and so kind of Revelation 21 and 22 is embedded in Isaiah 67. And um, I pray this, it, it's really just like four or five verses, but just, just listen. And if you would, if you would humor me, close your eyes. Just please close your eyes and listen to this description of the new heavens and the new earth from Isaiah 67 and was written in a time um, in the 8th century BC that these people of God could appreciate. This is how the Bible encouraged them. Never again in the new heavens and the new earth will, the, will there be in it an infant. Never will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They won't labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, 
I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Beloved, amen and amen. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, no mind can conceive what you have in store for those who love you, for those who have been called according to your purpose. Heavenly Father, forgive us for clinging too tightly to this sin-cursed world. Help us to understand that ironically, it's people, it's your people who have the highest view of the world described in our text today who do the most good for you in this one. Lord, help us to live in a way that is not full of fear and clinging. Help us look forward and greatly anticipate living in a place where before we even call, you will answer. That's how much you know us and love us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who is the light of this city. In your name we pray, amen.